Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex, one of the two hosts that we have on the show, and with us also on the show, as one would expect, is the following person. Hello, I'm Alaric. We're back. Hello, Alaric. We're back. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome to season, what we're calling season two of, uh, of, of Odds and Evenings. Brief hiatus. Thank you for your patience. And uh, yeah, we're ready to get back into some maths. How have you been in the meantime? I've been well. I've got a new job lined up for September. So I'm I'm moving schools. I'm going to be a maths teacher over at Worcester Sixth Form College rather than Hereford. Do your students know this already that you're leaving? Yes, they do. I told okay. them straight after getting the um the, the job interview. Oh, okay. Not the job interview. The job. Uh, that'd be risky <laughs> behaviour otherwise. <laughs> yeah, that would. Uh, um, you were always going to get that position though, given that it's the school you went to. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'll be running a lot of the Oxbridge extension sort of maths, and after I got the job. They showed me the leaflet of what they call Maps Academy, which is all of this stuff. It's got a picture of me on the front. <laughs> Circa you 2009. are the one who can teach this because it is you <laughs> who are on the cover. Hair down to my hips and a uh, nail varnish on. Theoretically, uh, we should be able to teach everything that we have been taught. Yeah. But not in practice. No. I, I think it's always good to go a few levels above in education compared with what you want to teach. Yes. Yeah. If you've got an A-level in something, I am confident you can teach GCSE it. If you've got a degree, I'm confident you can teach A-level. It's pronounced IT. <laughs> <laughs> right, you want to do some maths? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Pascal's triangle. My favourite triangle. Hmm, bold statement. <laughs> um, have you ever taken it to 3D? Um, how in and in what directions? Do you mean like a kind of step pyramid? I mean a kind of tetrahedron, I suppose. Hmm. So if we had one at the top, the next layer down would have three numbers in it. Ah, so it's the you're adding up the three numbers that are above it. Yes. Right. And, and they're it's like you're stacking oranges. What shape is that tessellating? If you if you don't if you think about the spaces that are made by the edges. Imagine you stacked a whole lot of balls, but then you let them merge to fill the area between them. Yeah. Good point. What is that? Well, you have, it's... around every space, you have three things. Yeah. That's freaking me out. Maybe it's two different types of shapes. Hmm. Because we said before that you couldn't tessellate tetrahedrons. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Um very long ago, one of our first episodes that episode we talked one. about. Episode 1? Maybe episode 2. I don't know, but that's a good question. Let me let me have a little think. I mean, I'm yeah. just going to draw a little picture. Yeah. I, I can see a stack of juggling balls out of the corner of my eye on the shelf, and there are four of them stacked, one at the top and three below it. Huh. So if you look in one plane, yeah. they'd make hexagons. So if you cut across it, it is all of the same shape, right? It's not two different shapes that are together in some way. It feels like every ball would have the same number of balls around it in the same structure. Yeah. So it feels like they must all be identical. They must all be the same, yeah. Alright, well I found the answer. What is it? A cannonball problem. Which flat square arrangements of cannonballs can be stacked into a square pyramid? Yes, it's because there are two different ways that you can do it. Two different types of ways you, you can stack spheres. And so it's, it's talking a little bit around the FCC arrangement, which is where you have four. It's the step pyramid. Yep. And the HCP. So the HCP, the hexagonal close packing. That's the one that we want. So the shape, it's got a hexagon as its kind of middle cross-section. Yeah. It's got a triangle on the top and it's got a triangle on the bottom. And It's to, a funny shape. To go from the hexagon it's like you would put three squares and three triangles around it. Yeah, you'd, you'd lean three squares up against each other from the three sides that aren't touching. Yep. The top corners of the squares all touch each other. Yep. Make a bunch of triangles. Yeah, and then there'd you do be the a same. triangle in between each pair of them and one triangle on top. Yeah, and then you do the same on the bottom hand side. It's got a certain niceness to it. 
Yeah, it's also hideous. It's got lines of symmetry and things. Is that a um one of the what's the one after platonic solids? Archimedean. Oh. Is it an Archimedean solid? I don't know enough about those. I think you can keep going with those Kepler solids and things. Hmm. As you keep loosening the rules. So yeah. So Pascal's triangle. <laughs> <laughs> no, your question was good. Yeah. Um so we're gonna start with one at the top, in the top layer. Yep. And then the rule is to get each one below, you look at the three spheres above it yep. and sum them. So yep. this is equivalent to on Pascal's triangle adding the adding two, two above numbers it. above. Yep. Yep. So the next slice down would go one 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 in a triangle. Yeah. How do you describe this? It, it's it's one on the corners, two on the faces, and three in the middle is the next slice down. Yes. Not the faces, the edges. So it's like there's a one at the top. Yep. Let's go. Let, let's read um, as though all the points are at the top. As in, it's a it's a, a triangle that's the correct way up. Okay. Yep. Um, and let's read left to right. So it goes one, two, two. Yeah. One, two, two, one, two, one. So it's a one one in each of the vertices. It's a two in each of the edges. When you have three, don't you have one that's shouldn't one of them be three? No. You're going to get your threes involved on the next slice down. But we have three. That are all next. We have a one, one, one that are all next to each other. Surely, underneath that should be a three. There is no circle to fill in there. So imagine um, stacking triangle numbers together. The first triangle oh, number is one. One, three, and six. Yes. There is. There isn't one in the middle. Yes. Huh. Wow. That's kind of. Why, why do I intuitively want there to be one directly underneath? That's interesting. Okay. I think it's because you can see three numbers that you can naturally add up. Yeah, well, why isn't it up-down symmetric, you know? I think it's almost on a, a lag one more than that. I think if you're layering your oranges, layer one will have ones directly above layer four. Yeah, it is this difference between the HCP lattice and the FCC lattice from the cannibal stacking stuff. Yep. There's two different ways that you can stack threes. But we're talking about very simple, like, trying just triangular numbers is kind of what's... Yes. Just, Each yes. slice okay. is going to be one triangle number. Each slice is a triangle. Yeah. No so the, hexagonal slice. The, the next triangle we're going to do is the one which has uh, a one, a two, a three, and a four. It's got a four in it. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. As in yeah, yeah. how many on each layer? The rows are yep. of width one, two, three, four. Yeah. So, should we have a look at what that one looks like? Yeah. So, let's just recap. So, it went one, 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 and then like one, two, two, one, two, one. Yep. So, one's in the corners, two's on the edges. Two's on the edges. This one, well, it's got ones on the corners. It'll always have ones on the corners. I agree. And if we notice how that's like Pascal's triangle, it's like the ones on the edges. Ones on the edges, yeah. Uh, it's going to have threes on the outside. Yep. Oh, um, this is looking interesting and familiar. In the center. Each of the faces on the outside is a Pascal's triangle. Yeah. Which, that's cool, right? <laughs> you are so correct. We can reduce it down a dimension by just shearing off one of the sides one of the faces yeah so what about the numbers that aren't connected to the faces so the first one we had like that was on the fourth slice down the fourth layer and that was yeah. the six right in the middle if we think about what Pascal's triangle is doing the normal 2D one it was finding coefficients of if you expand out A plus B all to the power N I think of it in terms of um, the choose function yes but well, I guess that they are equivalent, equivalent. yeah yep. What I think this is doing is something in the form A plus B plus C, all to the power N. Okay. I think what we've got here is like a trinomial theorem. Hmm. But what's what? Let's do A plus B plus C, all to the power 3. Well, that will give us each of the things individually to the power 3. A to the 3 plus B to the 3 plus C to the 3. Plus, if we think about which cross terms we can get here... We could have, say, A with A with each of the others. So A squared B plus A squared C. And A, B, C. Yeah, we can get the uh, the triple one, A, B, C. We can also get each of the other ones. So B squared A, B squared C, and then C squared A, C squared B. But how many of each? I think we get three of each of those. Because we could choose to have... Say we're going A squared B. We could choose the B to come from either the first bracket, the second bracket, or the third bracket. How many ways can we get ABC? 
Well, I think that's what six is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's almost like if you're mixing three variables. Yes, you have the triangles where it's a hundred percent in each corner of one, and you sort of move about on there. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. So if we imagine again, let's have the point at the top in our triangle one, three, 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 six, three, one, three, three, one. We could have the top one is like a hundred percent A's, the bottom left corner being a hundred percent B's, and the bottom right corner being a hundred percent C's. Yeah. Your total power of all of these numbers has to be three. So as you step away from one corner, you'd be stepping towards one of the other corners. Yeah. And it conserves the power still being one. There's so still being the same. Yeah. And the numbers in Pascal's pyramid tell you the coefficient. Yes. Is it his pyramid? Did he really invent this? Is it someone else's pyramid? Oh, I I don't know if it's actually called this. Okay. <laughs> you, you just seen the natural name. I don't know. Pascal's tetrahedron, maybe? Yeah. Because there is a version of this you could do where you have fours. Four. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is it. I, I'm thinking, as soon as you realise you can go one step up, you can then start thinking, okay, what are the general patterns here? What's always going to be here? So, like we noticed, there were ones on the... Um, on the corners of this, just like we had ones at the edges of Pascal's triangle. Yeah. Well, as you go up, you're always going to have that property. It just is harder to think about as you start thinking of higher simplexes. Is the next order up, is it to go for four on the base, or is it to hit the next level of dimensionality? I think you need to go a dimension up. It's the same when you go from two to three. You're just having a two-pointed shape, which is a line, underneath. Yep. So two, 2D and a, 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 a polygon of order 2 is, um, a, you know, that's the, that's the same. Well, a good way to test whether you need another dimension going up is to think about what happens when we go down. What's the 1D version of this look like? Yeah, it's just a big old line. I think it's just a line of ones. It's, you have a 1 at the top, and then the rule is you look at the number above it and that's it. There's no adding to do. And so you just it, get the line one, 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 one. Yeah. Which corresponds to if you're expanding out the bracket A to the N, just like we were doing A plus B to the N or A plus B plus C to the N, this is telling you what coefficient you get on it, which yeah. is always just one. But if you think about it in terms of variable mixing, mixing one variable is easy. It's all just one mixing two variables, you're going left to right on yep. Pascal's triangle with increasing levels of um, granularity as you go yep. down the triangle. On this one, we, you know, we've got the moving around on the triangular cross sections of, of the pyramid. Yep. If you want to mix four variables, and I've thought about this before because it's something that I can't talk about but because it's connected to my work, but that it that has happened between the end of season one and beginning of season two of odds and, even, odds and evenings I've thought about this you need to do a tetrahedron in order to mix four variables you can't have a square because that doesn't like make sense that makes sense that makes yeah. sense to me so these mixing shapes are a dimension out from the Pascal's shape yeah so like mixing three variables you can do a triangle with but you need a tetrahedron to do the Pascal coefficients. Yeah. To mix two things, you can do it on a line, but you need Pascal's triangle to do that. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if we could find some... Like, we know loads of patterns about Pascal's triangle. I wonder if we could think about which of those carry on up to Pascal's pyramid. What patterns do we know with Pascal's triangle? Well, things like um, each row adds up to a power of two. Here's a couple of justifications. You can pick whichever one is nicest to you. Justification number one is to get from one line to the next line, you took each of the numbers into consideration twice because each number was the parent of two children. Yeah. And so because each one counts twice, you get twice as much. Two times that, yeah. Yeah. Justification number two, which is maybe nicer, often when I introduce Pascal's triangle, I do so thinking a bit about probability. So if you imagine flipping a coin, heads or tails, let's say it's 50% each. Say for three coins, you could get three heads, two heads, one head, or zero heads. Yeah. Because that's one, three, three, one. Yep. And so on if you want to do um, more flips. 
but because you know it has to be uh, flipping coins, every extra coin you add is adding in an extra factor of a half in terms of the probabilities. Mm. I preferred the first explanation. <laughs> cool. Fine. <laughs> no, I understand. If you were teaching it to students, they would. Um, they They've would often find got the, the coin flipping more intuitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Than the uh, yeah. Whereas us abstracted patricians happy to think about it in terms of uh, number <laughs> nice theory. inductive proof. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does each slice add up to on this? I ha- I haven't actually tried it out, but I have a hunch. the slice. So it goes one. Yep. Three. Yep. Nine. Mm-hmm. Cool. And the next one looks pretty 27-y to me. I'm not doing it. You do it. Uh, six. Yeah, it's 27. Which, using justification number one, each number is the parent of three numbers. So it's being counted three times. Yeah. And I believe if, that. if we were to carry this on past the pyramid, I am happy that this pattern continues. That the volume of the pyramidal cross-sections of Pascal's four tetrahedron yep. sums to powers of four. Yes, because each number in one is the parent of four others. Hmm. That works. It's a really annoying you can't visualise more than three dimensions. It's very in- frustrating. When doing this 4D one, I'm imagining a whole lot of tetrahedrons next to each other. Yeah. They're not joined in my head. Well, it's discrete, isn't it? So you can do that, I suppose. If it's continuous, that becomes problematic. But because we're talking about discrete slots here. Yep. Yep. What other patterns do we know? There are ones where I find it hard to imagine how to um, take it up a dimension, so you can help with this. Yeah. Hockey sticks. This is a fun one. So on Pascal's triangle, we're going to start off with one of the ones, wherever you like, on one of the edges. And we're going to go diagonally counting up all the numbers in that diagonal as long as you want. Start so we, with one of the ones on one of the edges. Yeah. So let's say you start somewhere on the um, with one of the ones on the left-hand edge. Okay. And then you're going to go down and right adding up all the numbers. Yeah. You can go as long as you like. Say you go ten numbers in. If you then look at the number directly down and to the left of mm. whichever the bottom number you was... Mm. That number there is the sum of all of the numbers along the main branch that you just added up. Oh. We, we call it yeah. ho- hockey sticks. It's like you've got the, the handle going at, like really long, diagonally, and then you've got the little um, the head of the hockey stick, which tells you the result. Yeah. Which is a neat little trick. That is a neat little trick. Is there some version of that we can do with Pascal's Pyramid? I'm not even sure what that looks like in this, but it's... Uh, because it was a 1D sort of thing we were doing on a 2D thing. Are we looking for a 2D thing on our 3D thing? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, that one's not jumping out at me, I've got to say. Yeah, it's it's not clear when you do the uh, the hockey stick head bit, which way you'd go. What <laughs> what that means? Yeah, yeah. I, I know well, it if means... it's planes, is there a planar like skew you can do? Yeah. Yeah. I know that the head would have to be on the layer below, so whichever slice you stopped in you'd have to be looking at one of the numbers, or possibly a whole row of numbers, in the line below. But, I don't know. No. Interesting. One of the patterns that people do with Pascal's triangle is colouring in all the odd numbers. Okay. So, um, do you know what it makes on a Pascal's triangle? No, I don't, but I'm going to take random guess. Is it a Sierpinski triangle? It is, yes. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> um, oh, maths is stupid and I hate it. <laughs> so Sierpinski's triangle um, you take an upside down you, you cut an upside down triangle hole out of a right way up triangle so on the right way up triangle on the original one if you join all of the midpoints of the l- edges together yeah it makes a triangle and then you blow the hole out the middle yep and then you're left with kind of three connected triangles one in each corner yeah each of those you're going to do the same procedure on and you're going to keep going. Yeah. You so you keep you keep knocking the hole out the center of all the all the triangles that are triangles. And you keep doing that and you come to something which has infinite surface area but finite area, I think is the interesting thing about that. Uh do you mean perimeter? Yeah, infinite perimeter, but is it finite area? 
it is finite area. And if you you can work out what the fraction of the area is from it's the a, whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a it, yeah. No, it's not finite. It's zero because you just keep multiplying by three quarters. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not finite. Yeah, yeah. But every time you do it, you're adding in more perimeter. Yes. Yes, it has zero area and infinite perimeter. <laughs> so, what happens if you start colouring in the odd numbers on a Pascal's pyramid? Well, is there such a thing as a, as a Sierpinski tetrahedron? Y- yeah. I think there is, right? There is. I, I've i um, been part of projects to build really large ones, where you get everyone to build a tiny tetrahedron and you start making bigger ones out of it. Right. Um, well, one would assume it would be that, but... It- might not hold. Does the ah? Here's a good question for you. Does this do the sides of a Sierpinski tetrahedron look like a Sierpinski triangle? The faces of a Sierpinski tetrahedron are yes, Sierpinski triangles. Right. So yes, this looks likely. Does that it? looks like it'll add up? Yeah. The do, do, yeah. The question is, do the interiors hold? And they probably do, right? Yeah. You can think of it like we're adding together three numbers, which are either odd or even. And you can work out all the possibilities that there of, say, odd, odd, odd leads to odd, and so on. And so you've got, of the eight different possibilities for what the three parents are, if order, order mattered, which it doesn't, you could say, have a, like an output table of whether it goes odd or even. It's a bit like when you do those um, cellular automata, like rule uh, 110. I guess the, the negative space of a Sierpinski triangle must have infinite area, though. No, it'll have finite area. It'd be whatever the area of the original one was. Because they'd colour in the even numbers. Think about that. Yep. Yeah. You get similarly, similar but weirder patterns on a normal um, Pascal's triangle if you do colouring in, say, multiple of three, one more than a multiple of three, two more than a multiple of three. Oh, okay. What kind of stuff appears? It has a Sierpinski-ness to it, but finer detail hmm. it's not easy to describe but as you carry on going up through the different primes doing that you can get all sorts of weird and wonderful things hmm. um, I think we're going too visual here and so it, I'll leave a picture of that in the show notes Yeah, um, I'm not imagining, I can't imagine how that ends up looking but yes. no. good fun if you've got a couple of colouring pencils to just have a go at yourself I, I often do it in my lesson where you choose Pascal's triangle, I get them to look at a whole lot of these patterns Mm. Um, Do you think that's a good sideways proof for the three-color theorem of maps? The three-color theorem? Or, or whatever color theorem you want. Because surely at some point you must get a fractal that contains all possible shapes. And so you uh, can... <laughs> they're, they're very regular things. Even, even as they get more complicated. Yeah, that's true. They're self-similar, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and you should always be wary of these. Um, it's like claiming that because pi is irrational and goes on forever, that you're going to get all strings of numbers in it. Like yeah. that's not true. We don't know that about pi. All possible books are written yep. in ASCII inside. Yeah. So we call something normal in base ten if all of the single digits of it are equally likely to come up. Yeah. All of the um, two-digit pairs are equally likely to come up, and so on. So it's, it's as uniform as it could be. We haven't proven that for... We haven't proven pi. that pi is normal in base 10. Right. Um, in fact, the only ones we have proven are normal in base 10 are ones that we construct for the purpose. So the number 0. 0.12345678910111211 etc. So is zero point and then you're just concatenating together all of the natural numbers okay we've proven that's normal in base 10 have we proven pi is normal in any base no. I'm assuming not no no because if it was pretty you know if it was normal in binary then the stuff about all information being contained within it would be true yep but yeah something about that seems incredibly off um on, on like on like an information theory basis like you, yeah yeah I know it feels can't pack an infinite amount of information into a single abstract concept. I mean, here's one that is definitely not normal. Let's say you, you take the number pi, you go along all of its decimal digits, and any digits which are a 9, we're just going to get rid of. 
the new number is 3.1415. There would normally come a 9 next, but we're going to just skip it and go straight to 2, and mm. so on. This number um, is not normal because it doesn't have any 9s nines, nines in it. Provably non-normal. Yep. Or here's another one. Concatenate together all of the natural numbers, but miss out any that has the number 9 as a digit. Yeah, great. I don't Thank remember you. how we got onto that. No, I don't remember either, but I think we should wrap this section. Cool. <laughs> I have been listening to a lot of music on my computer lately. Normally I listen to music on my telephone. There are a couple of differences between listening to music on your computer and listening to music on your telephone. Okay. But the main one that I have at the moment is the difference in the number of volume sliders I have to deal with. So when I have my phone, if I'm just making the phone blare the music out and I'm playing through... Uh, let's say YouTube, there's only one volume slider. Like, YouTube plays at a certain volume, fixed yep. on the phone, and then I turn the phone's volume up and down. Got it. That, that's fine. Do you also have, say, headphones attached to this This point? is what I'm about to get onto. Okay. So, when I have my wireless headphones, um, they have an independent volume slider themselves. Yep. So there's a button on the side which I can use to turn them up and down, and so that means that if I'm listening to, say, YouTube when I'm out and about, because YouTube Premium, hooray, and I, and I have my headphones on, I can turn the volume up and down on my phone. Yep. The phone's volume. Because you, you like, in this scenario, YouTube is a fixed volume. My phone has, a, has its own volume slider to go up and down, and my headphones have their own volume slider to go up and down. So I'm dealing with two there. Yep. And normally, yep. what, 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 normally what I do there... Is I just uh, is I, I just sort of I don't bother. I just have the headphones turned up to maximum, and then I just deal with the volume control on my phone. Yep. As we are about to learn, that might be inadvisable. Then, when I'm dealing with my computer, I have my speaker system, which yep. has its own volume dial. Ooh, um, native volume dial on your computer. Yes, the native volume dial on my computer. One in iTunes. Yes, and one on 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 YouTube. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that makes there three different volume sliders. Yes. Now, my question for you, and this is something that... So I have heard the answer to this, and I don't have a proof. So okay. this is... Uh, yeah. Are um, you going to say which order should you turn things up and down? I have half a proof. And the question is, to preserve sound quality... Yep. And to have the output volume at a certain level of your choice that's comfortable to you... Yep. There are a, an interesting number of ways of doing the different volumes. In fact, further to our point earlier on, you it's can think about three it. Three mixing. You can think about it in terms of three mixing, yeah. Yeah. So how to, where on the, on the three mix triangle should I be in order to have maximum sound quality? So you have spoken to me about sound quality in the past. And so you, I have it so that it is the last thing in the line which is the thing I control the sound on. So things like iTunes and YouTube, I have full volume. It, it would be the speaker, which I would turn up and down. Now, actually, I don't really do that because the speaker is out of reach for me. So I tend to just do the native one on the computer. Yeah. Because, because I can control it with keyboard. I control it with keyboard. With mine, I, I, I click the volume and it, you have really granular control. If you, if you have a mouse and you use the scrolly wheel, okay. um, it's really good for doing, for, for doing volume. So that's also how I do mine, um, because the volume control at the metal, well, actually on that one, the, the volume control on my, my speaker system, I, I actually have at a, at a, like, maybe like 10% volume, because it's a pretty beefy system. Okay. So um, uh, I have that at about 10%, and then I normally have the, the slider on, on YouTube will be turned all the way to the maximum, and then, the, uh, and then I will modify based on the, the, the native controller on the PC. Now, this is inadvisable, so perhaps we should talk about, like, why. Talk to me about the sound waves. What's happening yeah. here? So, the way that sound waves are encoded when they are fully decompressed, that there are various compressions like MP3 and, and things like that, um, but if you think about a .wav file, which is incidentally the sort of format that we use for sending to each other uh, when we're editing this podcast, uh, if you imagine how a gramophone would work 
or vinyl. So vinyl has infinite sound quality. Um, yep. It just has noise, which is the issue with vinyl. That, that crackling sound is noise. It's not a sound quality issue. It is a standard waveform that wiggles around and that changes um, the intensity in which a, uh, a membrane is pushed in your speaker. So that goes forward and backwards. It creates a, com- a compression wave in the air, which you interpret as sound. Okay. Um, and so that is a, a nice, smooth, continuous function that is carved into the vinyl. And so the needle picks up that smooth, continuous function. Yep. And uh, and then that is turned into an, uh, an electrical wave, yep. which powers a, uh, a magnet in the speaker, which moves a membrane forwards and backwards, and that makes approximately the same uh, wave in the air. Okay. Coming towards you. Right, so that's vinyl. Now think about it in terms of computer. Um, we can't do smooth continuous functions in computers. So yeah, It has to be can... discrete, but presumably they can model it quite well, because it's discrete but small. Well, so what we have to do is we have to sample it at a certain frequency, Okay. which for us... Um, when I'm recording on Audacity right now, I can even see it on the left-hand side. It says stereo 44100 hertz 32-bit float. Um, and so 44,100 is the speed at which I uh, sample. Okay. And the 32-bit float is the uh, the granularity to which I'm sampling uh, you know, on the sort of up-and-down scale. So the frequency is kind of like, if you imagine a, a timeline of the wave. Yep. Yep. The frequency is is the the left to right granularity of yep. how I'm sampling, so forty four thousand one hundred times a second, and then the 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 up and down is how precisely I measure where the sound wave is. So I split it into a thirty two bit float, which is two to the power of thirty two. So that's that's massive. That that that's quite big, yeah. Um, that forty four thousand ish hertz humans. Um, is it twenty thousand hertz that we can hear at the top end? Uh, yeah, and that's connected because if, if if you're trying to measure something with frequency n hertz, yep, you need to sample it at two n or greater in order to pick that up. Okay, so this is that, but with a bit of redundancy. Yeah, because children are quite good at hearing higher things as well, and you know, computers are for them too. Okay, there's probably some other historical reasons why why that's the accepted standard. So when you think about a volume slider, what is that doing? To the wave. So that we're talking about the amplitude here. So related to that 32-bit float, so two to the power of 32. Presumably, it's making is cutting out some of that information. Is taking it from two to the 32 to something smaller. The range stays at two two to 32. Okay. But it's just taking all of those samples. Let, let's say you have a single volume slider, like it's my phone, for example, and I'm playing something through my phone, and um, that is down to 80%. So I just multiply all of the uh, 32-bit numbers by 0.8. Yep. And so because it's a one-to-one mapping, we haven't lost any information. Well, that doesn't fit within 32 yep. bits, right? Yeah, so let, let's pick an easy number. Let's say your volume's on 50%. Then you're taking everything that was 2 to the 32 and you're fitting it into something which would fit into 2 to the 31. N- yes, which would fit into 2 to the 31, but crucially is still measured in terms of 2 to the 32. Okay. So so the, the amplitude will, will never get higher than halfway because I've turned the volume half the way down. Yeah. But it means that all the odd-numbered ones are down as like 0. 0.5 and yep. they need to be discretized to not you know to, to a whole number so by do, making it discrete you're then doing something which is a many to one mapping some of the information's lost yeah yep and so every time you do a volume sliding you're losing some of the information because you're resampling it in some way so if you've got a few different volume things it's not that each individual one passes the original information and also this extra piece of information that of this is what rate we want to go through. They're not saying 2 to the 32 and also we want it at 0.8. We want it at 80%. And then the next one picks it up and it says, okay, there's still 2 to the 32 and we want to apply a rate of 0.2. And as it gets to the last one, it, it 
it doesn't uh, then apply all of the ones along the chain together to the original information. Instead, presumably, and correct me if I'm wrong, each one is compressing, discretizing, and passing on to the next one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What you're saying is actually <laughs> probably a really smart way to do it. Um, uh, and yeah, that's that's really clever. But it should just say, okay, it just sort of passes on the please, please do this further down the line. So, going the other way, how do you make something more volume? That's called gain. And, and so, so that's that's the exact same, except the thing you multiply is greater than one rather than less than one. And there you want you're going to have gaps. Say you want to make something twice as loud. Yeah. So you times all of your no- numbers by two. Yep. At that point, the, uh, there were half the outputs were not reachable. Yes, and so that is why when you're audio editing, you get that thing where it sort of goes red and it says this is too loud. Okay. Uh, that, what, that, what's what peaking is. So essentially, the, the peak on your waveform is so high that it can't be measured within 2 to the 32, and so it just chops the top off. Okay, and just, it just puts it at the loudest. It just decapitates it and, and put, puts it at the loudest. So that that's what like gain and, and, and amplifying is. That's why electric guitars sound great because they uh, they they overdrive. They have that. That's where the crunchiness comes from. So pulling back the veil a bit on this podcast, when at the start of the podcast we count down and then we both clap at the same time yeah. to sync the two different threads. Yeah. That's presumably one of the loudest things that happens. That is the loudest thing that happens, yeah. So what happens to that? Do, is that decapitated? That, that's decapitated, yeah. By doing that, are we making it so the rest of our sound wave is m- compressed into less amplitude? No. No, we're not. Uh, it would if you do normalization. So there's this thing you can do called normalization to sound, which is where you 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 take the range of amplitudes. Yeah. It's a bit like... um. It's a bit like correcting an exam, you know, when it, people are marked on a curve. Yep, I see. It, 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 it marks the, uh, the volumes on a curve. And so doing a clap and normalising it would make it so you'd hear only the clap. Maybe you'd screw up the curve, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but there's also, but there, you know, there's other things you can do, make contingencies, and you can say, well, just, just normalise it to, you know, when the volume's between these two and leave it when it's like that, or, or whatever. Uh, there's, there's a function within Audacity that I've always been tempted to do with you, but I found it after we started doing the claps, which is there's a thing which is an effect that um, increases the volume to the point where the highest volume peak becomes 2 to the 32, and everything else is, is increased accordingly. But I know with you that I just have to increase your volume by 7 decibels when I'm editing. If I had some piece of audio data, yes, and I'm going to do two, two different things to it. Method number one is I'm going to uh, gain by a factor of two, yep. and then I'm going to uh, reduce by a factor of two, yep. leaving it at original volume, but you've gained and then lost. Yeah. And method number two is I'm going to do it the other way around. Ah. By multiplying by two and then dividing by two, it feels like I haven't lost any information. Yeah, provided you don't peak. Provided, like, none of your volumes were above 0.5. So, th- yeah. yeah. The way it would be affected would be if things went out of the 2 to the 32, those would be things which would... Yeah. yeah. Okay. And going the other way, reducing it by 2 and then turning it by 2 again, that would mean every... Say you've got an odd number and an even number, or the odd numbers would map down to one of the even numbers... Yeah, or whichever way. Yeah. yeah. And so you would get less fine-grained. Presumably you wouldn't be able to hear that. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. There are people that claim they can, but above a certain amount, you gen- you generally can't. Well, yeah. this is an easy thing to test, right? Yeah, exactly. And people do these tests. Okay. And some people are good at it and some people aren't. But um, something's also lost in your in your headphones as well, because it's, you know, you can get the signal all the way, but there's stuff to do with impedance matching and inductance when it comes to the actual circuitry itself that, that warps it in other ways beyond sampling. So um, a really good set of headphones. They might make things a bit bassier or they might be just based on the on the some some of the like engineering the physics of it, which is a bit too a bit too real for this podcast. <laughs> um, you don't often find gain actually in in uh, in, in a lot of stuff. It's, okay. Um, I know my speakers at the moment that I use actually have a have a 
like 11 decibel gain or something like that, which means I always have the volume slider on about 10%. Anyway, so to get back to the point on uh, on sound quality, um, the theory goes that you should have all of your volume sliders set to 100 to avoid any resampling, except for the one that's closest to the metal. Okay. So, be it speaker or the headphone the, or whatever. The speaker. Actually, I shouldn't say closest to metal because that means two things. That means either closest to the server or closest to the speaker. You should... The thing that's closest to reality, or the last one in line, that's the one you should change. I, I like the uh, closest to reality thing. Yeah. So, uh, you've got something in the deep, dark worlds of the internet, and it's uh, slowly screaming its way into the, your real life. It's being, yeah, it's affecting the air around you. And so the the last bastion is the one that should modify the volume in some way. That makes sense. It's been in my mind since you told me to do that. To do well, that. Alaric, question for you. Yep. <laughs> this is my question. Does it make sense, though? Okay. So I, I get that only one should not be 100%, but I have no proof as to why it should be the last one. Why can't it be that my speakers are on 100, my computer's on 100, but YouTube's on 50. So. Yeah. And is there a mathematical reason, or is this more of an engineering reason? I'm not sure it's going to go mathematical. So, you've got some um, data, which is on the 2 to the 32 scale. Yeah. Let's say you've got three different sliders. Yeah. Uh, two of them are going to be 100%, so it's like a times one factor. And one of them's going to be times 0. 0.8. In the situation where it's the last one, you've got all of your data, 2 to the 32. You multiply it by 1, which provides no losses. You multiply it by 1, again, which does the same. And then you multiply it by 0.8, where it's all compressed down. Mm. It feels like you get exactly the same situation if you put the 0.8 in either the second or the first place. Yeah. So say it's in the first place, you compress it down to 0.8 but then you have no losses with the 100 and the 100 again. Yeah, that makes sense to me as well. Presumably, as it passes through each thing, there is some corruption of the data. Is, is some information lost as it passes through? Yeah, it depends if there's compression. So you have things like MP3, which is a compression format, that is lossy in some way, in that the way that it squashes the data down to be transformed loses some of it and not in a sort of volume slidery way but in like a it, it has a cleverer way of making it smaller in terms of information what's happening in the wires so say the normal aux cable that goes from a laptop to a speaker those 3.5 like jacks yeah as the information goes along there what's happening so theoretically that is a voltage that is switching okay and it's doing it in a continuous way, rather than discrete. It's doing it as discrete as it possibly can. But the problem is, wires have a bit of noise to them. Which is why you have ones made of gold sometimes. But they have this thing called inductance, which is the natural magnetic quality of the wire. Um, so when... So a perfectly straight wire has no inductance, like absolutely straight. Because it doesn't, it doesn't um, self... The magnetic field that, that, that it creates isn't disturbing the electrons in the wire. Okay. But the moment you have any type of coiling whatsoever, any bend in it, you get this thing called inductance, which uh, what it does is it tends to um, kind of smooth the, um, the waveform a little bit. Okay. Like yep. it, it kind of makes it hard for it to sort of ramp up to it. It gives it a bit of sort of attack. So it's like rather than going on to off. Yep it will kind of slide between the two. And this this just falls out of the um, differential equation. So I think this is the factor, this, the middle factor. It's the, the multiplier on uh, the first differential of current. Okay. I think. And so so that causes kind of yeah, some smoothness to it. And so I guess in the wire, if, the, if you're resampling that as it's being transferred... How much difference does that make? So people do go for, say, gold wires and things, audio files... It, yeah. Is it a difference that people can detect? So, I mean, the, the goal doesn't really matter too much. That's all a hoax. Um, but there is a reason that, you know, you get high-quality speakers and things like that. And there's a bunch of stuff that goes into high-quality speakers. The main thing, actually, with high-quality speakers is more to do with the, the physics and the acoustics of the, of the speaker itself. Okay. 
things that have a lot of base boost, sort of things like that, it's all more an engineering problem. But yeah, I, I, I suppose that some, some of it, like, through wire transfer is, is probably, you're probably losing a bit of information in the resampling. If you look at a display cable, so um, a DVI one, they often okay. have that little cylinder near one end along the wire. Mm. So it's the bit with all the kind of magnetic coil in it. Yeah, there is a thingy at the end. I didn't know that's what that was. I, I think it's a, it's a ring of um, magnets, essentially. Okay. And I think it acts as a noise gate. So as little bits of static and like random bits of information that they don't oh. want is going along. Yeah. They can't go through that. It like, it like cleanses it. It damps it. it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. It, it, that won't be. Um, that won't be a herbicide step function, but it'll be a. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's inductance doing that. Yeah. I think our conclusion on this one is, it's not to do with the maths. No. Time timesing by one and one and zero point eight is all commutative. It's going to make no difference. Yeah, it's probably something to do with the circuitry engineering of the of the thing. So I, my speaker system, I have a wire that comes out of my computer and into a kind of computery box with a screen and stuff, and then that goes into the speaker. Yeah. Which is where all the physical stuff happens in the in the actual the you know the the speakers themselves. Here's my um, kind of thought for why it probably does matter that you put the the compression right at the end. Let's say you're dealing with ciphers or something. You've got a whole lot of information, and yeah. um, you've got a hundred bits of information. And let's say that occasionally one of those bits uh, gets damaged and flips to another one. Like the static along here, there's noise. Yeah. If you compress your data right at the beginning, and let's say you've taken your 100 bits of data and you've taken it down to only 80 bits of data. Yeah. Then those 80 bits of data, they kind of represent the original information. Yeah. But if one of them randomly flips due to noise, static, now it's it's got more effect. Yeah. Because it's... It's not one out of eighty. It's actually like eight tenths. It's one point two five. Yeah, it's yeah, it's twenty twenty five percent. So, by taking the raw data for as long as possible, any random bits of information which flip, let's say it's a one percent noise rate, it matters less to the overall code than your super condensed down thing at the end. Yeah. I believe that. And and one of the most important bits is the first one, because that's the one that indicates whether you're in the top half of the volume or the bottom half of the volume, right? Okay. And so you kind of you you kind of want to make sure, you know, if if, if everything yeah. was the uh, you know just because of the binary, right? Like, is this two five five? Let's imagine that it's like eight bits rather than thirty two bits. Is this is the volume two five five or is it zero? Yep. It's like you add you're adding a uh, hundred twenty eight <laughs> when when that first bit flips. And so you kind of want to make sure that everything is in that is in that range, rather than because if everything was teeny tiny, tiny quiet except for one bit, which is very loud, yep. then uh, yeah. What you need is um, error checking, like bit bits, extra bits of information to uh, error check if there is something like this static going on. Yeah, like you should transfer it four times and use the modal value or something like that. Uh, there are loads of standard ways of um, encoding information, so it has bit checks. Ah, okay. I mean, the, the one most people are familiar with is credit cards. The the last digits there can be worked out from the other 15. Um, it's, it's a bit check to check whether it is a valid credit card number without having to go and look it up in some database. And the first six numbers indicate which bank you use. Interesting, right? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> For the bin, the bank identification number is the first six. Everyone tweet their bank details. Yeah, let us know your bank details. <laughs> no, I'm not sure I'm even allowed to. <laughs> Is that legal to say that? Don't do that. Do not tweet us your bank details. Okay, mine has a physics bent to it as well. Okay. Um, it's a problem asked from a student to me uh, a couple of days ago. 
So we, we were talking uh, all about water going through pipes and that kind of thing. I decided to want to make a water feature for my garden. And uh, one Where of my are friends, you going to put it? <laughs> on the left-hand side. I, I want it to have lots of moving bits. Um, little bamboo shoots which go backwards and forwards as water tips into them and things. Do you have a hose? Uh, no, but I'm, I'm going to get a pump and a, a little pond. Get a hose installed. Oh, a little pond. Oh, okay, okay, fine. Yes. Right, yep. back to the math. Um, when I was talking about this, one of my students who is very into fish, uh, fish tanks, was saying he had a, a kind of related problem. He's got a fish tank. He's got many. He's got one fish tank, which um, below it is another tank, which has a whole lot of like live rocks in it, in a kind of corally sense. Okay. There's a whole lot of layers to this lower tank, and as water filters through each of the different rocks and plants and things, it gets filtered naturally. Yeah. So it takes out all of the uh, impurities, nitrates and things. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, like house plants and air. Yeah. Same kind of thing. What he wanted is in the top fish tank, which is maybe a metre and a half above it, for some of the water to be siphoned out of there into the top of this um, filtering live rock tank, go through there, and then to be um, pumped back up to the top tank. Now, clean. And it'd be nice if it was a continuous thing. Mm. Now, siphoning, where you get a tube, you suck on one end of it, and the water starts coming out and the dropping water pulls the uh, new water around with it like this is the basic principle of siphoning yeah Um, you could have water siphoning from the top and you could have a pump which pumps water from the bottom tank up to the top one yeah the problem is you want those things to be going at the same rate hmm because you don't want the fish tank to run out of water or or I suppose the bottom thing to run out of water Stuff will die if either of those things happen. Yeah. How how do you do that? Hmm. So you can have an identical siphon of of an identical height that goes into a third tank, and then you just are always pumping the water at a higher rate out of the third tank into the top tank. But that's quite hard because it's you know it's like it's like the last little bit when you when you're when you're drinking a Coca Cola out of a out of a out of a cardboard cup. <laughs> And it goes <laughs> at the end. Yeah. It'd be a bit like that, but all the time. That'd be yeah. quite loud. If the top tank, if you... said so this is not going to be a correct solution. But if the water was right up to the brim, then it would start spilling out. Yeah. And so if you, if your top tank, if you, you allowed that to happen, uh, and all the extra water would then drop down into the bottom tank... Yeah. And the bottom tank is just pumping out. Like, those things match. Yeah, The reason you can't, you can't do that with a fish tank is... With fish tanks, you usually don't have the water right up to the top because they've got uh, lamps and stuff at the top mm-hmm. to heat the fish. Yeah. And drilling a hole in the side of the tank sounds like a perfectly good way of destroying a tank. Yeah. So is there something we can do cleverly with pipes which automatically drains water when it gets to a certain height in the top tank. Is there something we could do like um, how toilets work or something? Yeah, I suppose you could. I've got a wackier solution. Go for it. You would need an Arduino to, you know, this is a this is a computer solution. Uses sensors and things. Okay. But you could do it based on the um, so with, with the pump. Well, okay, so there's two problems really, isn't there? There's too much water in the coral tank and too yep. much water in the fish tank. Yep. So the thing I was thinking was if you have too much water in the coral tank, what you could do is you could uh, you could always have the tank being weighed. Okay. And then if, when the tank gets too heavy, the pump turns on, you know, and takes the water out of that tank and, and puts into the top one. And when yes. the tank gets too light, you just, you let the water uh, the water only siphons in one way I guess so you would turn the pump off and then it would just keep getting heavier all yep. the water would go in and then the pump would turn on now the thing about that is um, you're getting into cybernetics at that point which is what I have to go in hooray um, <laughs> and uh, you have stuff to do with um, you get sort of sawtooth effects and stuff because if you can imagine that it's always just slightly over the amount 
you'd basically you'd have the pump going uh, 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 <laughs> just turning on because it would like flicker between the right yeah. amount and yeah. so you need to have some kind of um when uh, it gets to this level pump until it gets below this level yeah you have stop. two heights yeah which is where yep. you get your sawtooth thing from it goes up and then down and then up and down um, which could also be unpleasant as well. Like, if you have that when it comes to a thermostat in your home, and now I don't know if a fish feels the sort of the, the, the pressure difference at, at the bottom of the, the tank differently, whether it feels kind of similar to them as in, like, the warmth of your home. But imagine if you had that with, with your thermostat at home, that's really annoying because yeah, uh, it would get hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold. And uh, my house is particularly bad for that. It gets boiling and then it gets freezing and then it gets boiling. Um... You then you get into stuff to do with uh, PID controllers, proportional integral derivative controllers, which is stuff that you start doing. Like the rate of pumping is proportional to the derivative of the height of the water, and like then you have stuff to do with like the integral of the height of the water, <laughs> and 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 it's uh, it's real gets deep into control theory at this point. I, so, so your your computer solution may actually work well for this student. He. It says he has a Raspberry Pi he's willing to um, put to the project. Oh, I see. And he's a computer scientist. So that that may well be the thing. That might work. But you need to start learning about PID controllers, which is great if you know um, differential equations. It's all the same. Same kind of thing. But I think something you could easily do is exactly what you were saying. Ah, aha. But I, yeah, I know. I see what you're saying now around um, drill, don't drill a hole inside. Yep. Because you could, you could have a, a, you know, an overflow little tube thing. Yep. Yeah. Which is nice and mechanical and definitely won't fail even if you have a power cut. Whereas the computer one, if you come back after your holiday and um, you find out it's been off for a week and it's been pumping all the water over the edge. Like, it's nice to have a fail safe, which is just a this is a hole that it goes out of. In the yeah. same way that you have a hole in your sink in case it overflows. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what that is, yeah. Because that's the same problem, right? Yeah. You're pumping water from one tank into another tank. The tank being a basin or a sink. I'm, I'm sketching some pipes here. And I'm mm. wondering whether there's a way. So I've drawn myself a kind of a, a side view of a fish tank. And I've put the water level somewhere in it. So not at the top, but somewhere, I don't know, three quarters of the way up. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, I need some sort of input to a pipe here. That if it gets above this level water's going to start going into it. So I'm having, like, a pipe, uh, the opening of which is facing upwards, and it goes, like, into the water a bit. Yeah. Um, now, I need this pipe to curl out of the tank. So let's curl it round, go over the side of the tank. I'm kind of imagining this pipe will be filled with water. Mm-hmm. So that it remains filled with water, what I need is for it to upturn on the outside of the tank at the same level. So what I've got is um, it's like an N shape, but at both of the bottom bits of the N, it's curled upwards. One is inside the tank, one is outside. Both the bottom bits of the N? Yes. It's an N if you pushed on its head really hard, so its, its legs started splaying outwards. Ah, oh, okay. And upwards. Wait, are we talking capital N or lowercase N? Lowercase n. Oh, I see. And uh, it's all symmetrical, so both bits are the same height. Yep. With that, if the water level went higher in the fish tank, it would push into the pipe, which would push the water around, which yep. would make it flow out of the other side. Does that work? Can it go uphill like that? If we think about, say, the, the pressures on the water... Yeah. If the fish tank went far higher the pressure on the water inside it on the inside of the tank on that side of the end would be higher than the one on the outside but is that pressure differential high enough in order to start pushing things around to go all the way up to the top back down again okay i think the problem here is if it goes really high up then the water wouldn't just stay in that pipe it would flow out of it again i don't know vacuums are I, i'm sorry I'm, I'm kind of playing both both yeah, devil's advocates at the same time. <laughs> it's like yeah, you're right. There's no air to fill that thing. There's no air to fill that. So that could work. Yeah. Would that go in both directions? Uh, another way of doing it is, I mean, you would have to do some testing. But 
as long as your pump pumped water at a rate slower than the water flows through the pipe down yep. into the lower tank. You could have your your pipe... I'm, I'm assuming the pipe comes out of the bottom in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have the pipe extend from the bottom and then inside the fish tank go all the way like up the side and then get to your desired height. Yes. So it only goes in the pipe unless it is above a certain height. And then that pours out to that height and then the... the and then the pump, oh, it depends on, on the, the rate at which it filters through. I mean, I guess you could kind of just do it overnight, but the pump could yep. also just be constantly running. Um, yeah, at, at a slower rate and just be always be pushing pushing water from, from the lower tank yeah. Yeah. into the top one. Because when the top one gets too low, it nothing will flow. Yeah, no, you're right. It will flow. Hmm. Will it flow? Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. The pump is going to keep going. So even if the bottom tank wasn't getting more water topping it up... It fills up to the point where it starts doing that again. Yeah. Yeah. You need to keep enough water in the system. If the if the water slowly evaporates from the whole system, the top tank is going to remain at just under the level at which it starts siphoning off. So it's all going to come from the bottom tank? Yeah. It, yes. So the fish are all right, but your live rock is not. Yeah, you need to you need to fill in water, but I'm not sure there is a good solution to the to the evaporation. I I think that is a, a sensible, workable solution. I'm wondering yeah. if toilets do similar things, like in the flush bit in the system. Well, toilets have uh, the little bobble thing, don't they? They've got yeah, a floaty uh, thing. Is like a height detector. Yeah. Same with um, I don't know, filling in petrol in your car. Yeah, how does that work? I never I never worked that out as a kid. Like, does it stop at a certain point? There is a little um, floaty bobble thing on a lever. and So when it's detecting how full your tank is, it's just how high the uh, the bobble is floating. But when do you know when to stop filling up your car? You oh, I look, don't know. You just have to look through the through the window to, at, your, at your gauge. I've never filled up a car. I have. But I... My dad always just told me when to stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm guessing if it's mechanical, you just look at the gauge. You have to have the car turned on so that the gauge works, but... Thanks, fish. <laughs> right, so at the end of these episodes, we often do a little wrap-up. Uh, we're going to try and make them a bit quicker, because they, we're starting to ramble. So, the idea is we're going to quickly uh, do a little conclusion of how we did on each one. Yeah. So, the first thing we talked about was what? Um, a Pascal's Pyramid. Pascal's ah, Tetrahedron. I really like that. Yeah, it was just fertile ground for looking for patterns. Yeah. And it, it was nice that it had a natural um, continuation up into higher dimensions, or yeah. lower dimensions, Rwandi. Um I quite like it. I, I've been looking at Pascal's Triangle for a long time. Mm. And it was, it's nice that it, when you see it, it's just one face for a bigger beast. I want to give that a nine, in the sense that it was satisfying. We often yeah. talk about how satisfied we were with what we did. That was very satisfying. Eight. Solid. Um, and then the next thing we talked about was sound quality and volume controls and sampling and things like that in computers. Yeah. It was nice to hear from you because you've done a lot of uh, well, student radio and audio stuff in the past. So it's, uh, it's very much in your wheelhouse. This is, it is my wheelhouse. I think it's quite good that I now have an intuitive sense of why the controller should be closest to the speaker. Before yeah. I've, I've been befuddled for the last week, going like, well, why is that the case? Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've got there now. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. But I, what I've done is I've moved my volume speaker on my speakers. It's now on my desk. So I'm starting to do all my volume control on, on the desk. So even knowing this, I'm still going to be using the, uh, the native one on the laptop. Yeah, well, a- until it's within arm's reach, there's nothing more I can do. But no, I enjoyed the conversation. Mm. It's nice to do some physics things. Yeah, I, I'm putting it at a six. Yes, I would like to put it at a six as well. I think that's about right. And then the last thing we talked about was uh, fish, water, coal control. Yeah. It was yeah. an actual practical problem asked of a student to me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I feel we came up with two workable solutions. Yes, a number of solutions are available. One is computing based, yep. and that's fine. Um, I quite like the uh, the pipe thing. Yeah, I I you... still wonder if you actually tried it whether 
it would just flow out both sides. Yeah, would it work? It's something I'm, I might see if I can try. Yeah. I've got some straws. I've got a sink. Yeah, you need to make sure that there's water all the way through. Because if any air gets to the top, you are done. Yeah, because it can just expand out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have a play. Yeah. Try it out. Okay, I'm going to give that an eight. Nine. Hmm. We solved Good. a thing. We solved a thing. We don't know if we solved it, but we think we solved it. That's very nine-like. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you everybody for coming along to episode one, season two. Um, we're probably still just going to keep calling them, like, episode number 29 or whatever. We're not going to do season numbers. Um, I think iTunes doesn't really like that either. So, uh, we look forward to seeing you on a regular basis going forward. And, uh, yeah, thank you everybody for coming along. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us at twitter.com slash oddsandevenings. You can find me personally at twitter.com slash speakmouthwords. You can't find Alaric, sorry. He mans the, he mans the uh, Odds and Evenings Twitter account, basically. Um, you can go to our website, oddsandevenings.com, uh, where you can click on contact there, and you can contact us, and that will land in a, in a secret inbox that we read somewhere. Um, it's not secret. <laughs> the email address is in the early episodes of the show. Uh, but yeah, just go on the website. Um, what else? Any other ways they can contact us? I think we've covered it. Okay, that's all the contact. Um, background music by David Russell 323 on YouTube. Uh, that's all in the show notes. And um, I think that's it. I think Lovely. that's it. Lovely. Thank you, everybody, for coming along. And we will see you next time. Bye bye, Alex. Bye bye. Yeah, you need to you need to fill in water when it. But I'm not sure there is a good solution to the to the evaporation. Did you hear that thud? I did hear that thud. What was that? Uh, Mew just ran across the room and grabbed a fly out of the air. The fly has been eaten. Nice, good job, Mew. Yeah. <laughs> but she did run into the wall while she did it. Okay, well, can't have it all. <laughs>